You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Every year, stress-related illnesses kill 120,000 Americans and generate nearly $200 billion in healthcare costs. Americans are stressed out people. Issues at work and at home, on the news and in our lives, weigh on us all the time. And as we grapple with these stresses, we don't take much time off. On average, Americans get two weeks of paid vacation time per year, and 25% of Americans don't take all of their vacation time. Besides that, each night, more than 35% of us do not get the recommended amount of sleep. Friends, we are overstressed and underrested. And so many, if not most of us, regularly feel worn out, heavily burdened, and overworked. We need rest, and we're not very good at getting it. And this morning, we're going to talk about rest as we continue our series in the book of Genesis. Today, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And this morning, we're going to look at four points. First, we'll see that God rested on the seventh day of creation. Second, God commanded Israel to rest on the Sabbath day. Third, God provided rest for his New Testament people in Christ. And then fourth, we'll come to the application and ask, how do these biblical ideas about rest relate to us? Let's start with our first point, which is that God rested on the seventh day of creation. If you have a Bible open, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Now, Genesis 1 began with a summary statement promising that we were going to see God create the heavens and the earth during this period of the beginning. And now our author Moses says, that has taken place. God has built the visible universe in six days. And he has created their host, their multiple inhabitants. The heavens have been filled with the celestial bodies. The earth is filled with life. God's creation stands complete. Verse 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, as day seven begins, we're told that God's work is now finished. And in Hebrew, there are two words that speak of work. There's one word that speaks of unskilled labor and another word that speaks of skilled artistic craftsmanship. And here this second term is used. God is an engineer, an architect, a master builder, an artist. And creation is God's masterpiece that reflects his own excellence. Now maybe today we have a hard time believing that. Because we look at our world and say, hey, I see natural disaster. I see disease. But friends, I want to tell you, it was not always so. We live in a world today that was marred by the fall. Sin and ruin and death have come into the cosmos. This is not creation as God built it. 
And yet, even still, we can go out to the country at night and marvel at the night sky. We can gaze at the beauty of flowers or be in awe of the complexity of the human body. We still see the glory of God in creation. And if our ruined world today still points powerfully to God, imagine how flawless and glorious things must have been before the fall. God made a skilled work, and now it's finished. And so verse 2 says that God rested. A few years ago, when Sarah and I were in Mexico, I bought her a souvenir that I knew she would use. I bought her a hammock. And sometimes when the weather's nice and work has been hectic, she goes and hangs her hammock outside and lounges in it. She rests. That is not the same kind of rest that God engages in here. The idea is not that God is tired because he has created and now he needs a break in his hammock. Isaiah 40 says, The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. So this isn't saying that God was tired. No, the verb rest here simply means to cease or stop. And so what this is saying is, on day seven, God stopped creating because God had already accomplished his creative purpose. Look at verse three. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now the seventh day is unique. It's unique compared to the other days when we consider that God's words are not recorded here, just the concept of what God did. On this day alone, we are not told there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. That doesn't appear here. And on this day alone, God undertakes a unique act of blessing and consecration. In chapter 1, we saw that God blessed. God blessed various life forms, fish and birds and, and humans. Here he blesses a quantity of time. He blesses a day. What does it mean that God blessed this day? Well, there are many theories, but I think in short, the idea is what we see in the text, that God declared this day holy. He set it apart for himself. On the previous days of creation, we have seen that God repeatedly declared his work to be good. This is far beyond that. Here, God associates his own character with the seventh day. As God is distinct from creation, God makes the seventh day distinct from the rest of time, and he sets it apart for himself. And having done so, now the first section of the book of Genesis ends. The beginning has concluded. Now, having read this, we might reasonably ask, what does it mean that God consecrated this to the seventh day to himself as holy? And how does that relate to us? Well, that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time today considering. I, I'm not giving you a, a Mother's Day sermon that's this short so that you can get to the restaurants. No, there is application, but it's going to take some time for us to get there. Because first we have to go through the Old Testament, and this is now our second point, and look at how God applied this truth that he rested, which is related to the Sabbath day. In Genesis chapter 2, we're told that God rested, and the Hebrew verb that Moses uses is Shavath. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because it's very similar to the noun Shabbat, which we translate in English Sabbath. So unsurprisingly, this is the application that God draws from the truth that he rested on the seventh day, the law of the Sabbath. Now, Sabbath is a word 
that Christians have different views about. It is a topic that has divided Christians in the past. And so perhaps this morning we're a little jumpy because we say, I don't want to get involved in a theological controversy. But I would tell you that if we want to understand the truth that God rested and the application that that truth has for us today, we need to see how God develops this idea of rest across both Testaments. And so we must take this question head on and we must do our best to be clear about what the Bible is clear about and we should be charitable and gracious in those areas where the Bible is less clear and where our fellow believers may disagree with us. Indeed, faithful believers have understood the Sabbath law in different ways down through the centuries. And indeed, many of us here today may view the Sabbath command in different ways. And that's okay. We're going to see in a few minutes that the scriptures urge us to consider these things deeply, to be fully convinced in our own minds, and live in line with our conscience about them. So the answers I'm going to put forward to you today are the answers that I think are taught clearly in the Scripture, but friends, I might be wrong. Now, to help us examine the concept of Sabbath rest, we're going to begin by looking at verses in the Old Testament that talk about the Sabbath, and I'm going to organize this discussion around three questions. First, who was bound by the Sabbath law? Second, what was the Sabbath law? And third, how was the Sabbath law kept? Let's start with the first question. Who was bound by the Sabbath law? This is an intensely debated question. Basically, two answers have been proposed. Option one is that all people everywhere have always been bounded by the Sabbath law. And option two is that only Israel was bounded by the Sabbath law. Now, those who hold option one, that the Sabbath applies to all humanity, usually argue that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance an institution that God created before the fall, which reflects God's character and design, which was given to humanity with the intention that it should be in force through the end of history. Now, certainly there are creation ordinances. We're going to look at two of them over the next few weeks as we look at work and marriage. But I think the biblical evidence is not clear that the Sabbath is such an ordinance because we're never told that God imposed the Sabbath day upon the first people. Now, certainly in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God gives commands. God commands in chapter 1 that humans should eat only plant life. God commands in chapter 2 that they should not eat from the forbidden tree. But there is no word in chapters 1 or 2 that indicates the first humans were bound to observe rest on the seventh day or that they were even aware that God had rested on the seventh day. In fact, there's no evidence that anybody else in Genesis observed the Sabbath either. Not Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or anybody else. Now you might say, well, hey, just because it wasn't recorded doesn't mean that it didn't happen. And that's true. Maybe some of these people did observe the Sabbath, and for some reason, God has seen fit not to tell us about it. But when we study the Bible and extract theological principles from it, it's not enough for us to just make surmises. We have to work with the actual evidence God has given in His Word. And there isn't any evidence that these people observed the Sabbath, so I don't think we should assume that they did. In fact, there's no evidence anybody was even aware of the law of the Sabbath until millennia after creation when the Sabbath was finally given by God to Israel in the wilderness. And while God clearly gave Israel the Sabbath law, there's not any evidence he gave it to anybody else or required it from anybody else. When you look at the Old Testament prophets, what you'll find is that about a seventh of the prophets or the prophetic literature is about God condemning nations other than Israel. Never once in any of those passages does God condemn any Gentile nation 
for failing to observe the Sabbath. But four different prophets do condemn Israel for failing to observe the Sabbath. So again, I think there's no evidence God expected anybody other than Israel would keep the Sabbath. And in fact, there's no evidence that any nation other than Israel ever observed the Sabbath. Now, I think this is significant because when you think about other creation ordinances like work or marriage, they are practiced across a variety of cultures, but not Sabbath. So based on the available evidence, I think it's best to understand the Sabbath as binding only Israel and not all people generally. All right, we come now to our second question, which is, okay, what was the Sabbath law? The Sabbath law first appears in the Bible in Exodus chapter 16. If you've got a Bible, it might be useful to turn there. The context is that Israel has been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They're heading towards Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and they get hungry, so they start grumbling. And God is very kind to his faithless people, so he gives them manna, bread from heaven. And for five days, the Israelites find this bread and take it home and discover there's just enough for them all to eat. But on the sixth day, something changes. Look at verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And Moses indeed tells them on that Sabbath day, Today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find manna in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Now it's noteworthy that the Israelites are caught off guard when they discover that God gave them a double portion of manna on the sixth day, and that they were unaware God would withhold manna from them on the seventh day. This shows that they were totally unfamiliar with the concept of a Sabbath day. And that makes sense, because as slaves in Egypt, they would have been on the Egyptian calendar, which was a 10-day calendar, not a 7-day calendar. So now God is changing that. He's giving them the 7-day week. He's, he's giving them the Sabbath day. But, in what will foreshadow a tragic pattern, the Israelites fail to observe the first Sabbath. Look at verse 27. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now God says two things here. First, he says, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Who's you? Well, here it's Israel. And second, God commands that on the seventh day, the Israelites are to remain in their place and not go out. This will later become the basis for the idea that Israelites were not allowed to travel very far on the Sabbath. But note that God does not establish a particular distance here. The Pharisees would invent one, but God doesn't. But what we do see here is a general principle that the Sabbath was a time to remain at or near home. All right, now with this background, we move to the second time we see the Sabbath in the Bible, which is in Exodus chapter 20. Turn there if you've got a Bible. And here we're at Mount Sinai, and God is giving the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment reads this, beginning in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. 
you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Here God gives the Israelites a command related to how they use their time. And God says that six days a week the Israelites were to work. And friends, that's because work is an important part of God's plan for humanity. We'll see that next week. But the seventh day is Sabbath, a required day of rest. And in the way Israel calculated days, that ran from evening on Friday through sundown on Saturday. Now, God tells Israel, remember the Sabbath. He had recently given them this seven-day calendar and the Sabbath day. He wants them to obey that going forward. They were perpetually to devote an entire day to rest simply because God told them to. And this was required of everybody in the Israelite community, not just the men who would spend their days toiling away at various things, but women who did household work were to refrain from their labor too. Exodus 35.3 says, You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. It means no cooking. Children were to rest. Slaves were to rest. And that's noteworthy. Because when God repeats his commandments in Deuteronomy 5, instead of framing the Sabbath in terms of creation, as God does here, he says this, Deuteronomy 5.15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is also predicated upon the fact God delivered Israel from slavery. Again, this points to the fact that the Sabbath is for Israel alone, not for all nations. But it also reminded Israel to be kind to their whole community, including those who sold themselves into slavery. Because the Israelites had once been slaves deprived of rest. But on the Sabbath, they were to make sure even their slaves rested. Also, foreigners who attached themselves to Israel rested. Even animals rested on God's Sabbath. Now, friends, this shows immense kindness from God. In the ancient world, there were no work benefits, no labor unions, no eight-hour work days, no vacation time. In most cultures, people were at the mercy of their employers or their masters. Slaves were on the clock 24-7, and employees didn't have it much better. And those who could afford employees or slaves thought, hey, if they die from overwork, who cares? I can always get another one. But God doesn't think like that about people. God is compassionate. God knows that we are frail and that we need rest. And so God gave everybody, from the powerful to the powerless, a mandatory day of rest each week. In fact, the Sabbath principle was not only for each week, it also governed years. In Exodus 23, God says that every seventh year on Israel's calendar was also a Sabbath year for the land, a time when agricultural work was not to be performed. And this idea of Sabbath, either days or years, was not a small deal or an optional suggestion or a ceremonial bit of minutia that Israel could overlook. Turn over to Exodus 31, one of the most important passages here. We're going to read verses 12 to 17. Exodus 31, 12, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. 
Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh he rested and was refreshed. Now here God says, above all, as a matter of first priority for Israel, the Sabbath was to be kept. And it's interesting God says that here. Because at this point in Exodus, God's tabernacle is being built. The place where he's going to be worshipped through sacrifice. But what God is saying here is even a holy work like building the tabernacle must stop on the Sabbath. All work must stop on the Sabbath, even work dedicated to God. Why? Because twice here God says this is a sign between him and Israel. The covenants God makes with people usually have an outward sign that reminds the people of God's relationship with them. God's covenant with Noah was signified by the rainbow. God's covenant with Abraham was signified by circumcision. God's covenant with us is seen in communion. And God's covenant with Israel was seen in the Sabbath. What this sign shows, this text says, is that God chose. God distinguished Israel from the other nations on earth to be his special holy people. And so to disobey the Sabbath was basically arch treason. It was a repudiation of God's covenant and his favor. And that's why God says here twice, those who broke the Sabbath were to be put to death. Numbers 15 says death by stoning. That's how important the Sabbath was to God. But tragically, the Sabbath was not regularly kept in Israel's history, Ezekiel 20 says. And this was catastrophic. In fact, Jeremiah 17 and 2 Chronicles 36 say that the greatest catastrophe in the entire Old Testament, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and the Babylonian exile, were direct results of Israel's refusal to keep God's calendar of Sabbath days and years. And even after God brought Israel back from exile, in the final chapter chronologically of the Old Testament, Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah is outraged as he sees People still violating the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath was a high holy sign of God's calling and election of Israel, and it was a sign that was neglected with disastrous results. But this brings us to our last question on the second point, which is what were the Israelites to do? If they weren't to break the Sabbath, what were they supposed to do on it? Very little is actually said in the Old Testament about how the Sabbath was to be observed. Often today we assume that the Sabbath was a time for Israelites to gather together for public worship. And we have that idea because during the time of Jesus, the Jews had already established the institution of the synagogue that began during their exile in Babylon. And they would gather together in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And that was fine. Worshiping God was a good thing to do on the Sabbath. But the synagogue was not a part of Israel's worship from the beginning. In fact, in the 15 references to the Sabbath in the books of Moses, the focus is on rest and abstaining from work, not gathering for public worship. The main characteristics of the Sabbath are seen in Leviticus 23, verse 3. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, 
a holy convocation, or that word probably means holiday. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Israel had many holidays, but only the great day of atonement and the weekly Sabbath were called days of solemn rest, or we might translate this, a most restful rest, requiring complete abstention from work. The Sabbath was here called a holy convocation or a holiday. And, it, and we're told it was a holiday that was to be observed in one's dwelling places, in their homes or in their communities nearby. Now at the tabernacle on the Sabbath, a double sacrifice was offered each week. And it's possible that when Israel lived near the tabernacle, there was an expectation that they would gather there to see this. But after Israel conquered the promised land and spread out, the Sabbath did not require gathering together at the tabernacle. Rather, it was observed locally wherever Israelites were, including in their homes. And in their homes, what were they to do? Well, they were to refrain from their normal everyday activities. They were to rest. But this doesn't mean being couch potatoes. This was a day to honor and remember God. Isaiah 58.13 says, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. Sabbath was not a free-for-all to do whatever you wanted. The Israelites were to restrain their movement. They were not to waste their day with idle speech and vain things. But that doesn't mean it was a glum time. I think often today Christians have this idea that prayer and Bible reading and having conversations about spiritual things, well, that's a real bummer. And what's really fun is when we as a church get together and hit a pause on all that spiritual stuff and just like act like normal, unbelieving people for a while. Friends, that's a huge mistake. Spiritual things are not misery-inducing. They are to be delightful to God's people. God says in Isaiah 58, the Sabbath was to be a delight. It was a time to spend with family and with neighbors and to rejoice in God's good provision of time off, to read God's word, to love him and rejoice in him. One early writer says it was a time of undisturbed peace. And friends, this time of lovely peace and rest is what God commanded Israel to do in consequence of the fact that he rested on the seventh day. But this brings us now to our third point, which is how does this translate into the New Testament? What we see here is that God provides rest for New Testament believers, not in the Sabbath day, but in Christ. As we turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament, a lot has changed. The Jewish religious leaders finally understood that disobeying God was a big problem. And so what their solution was, was to invent their own man-made stringent rules to try to prevent people from even getting close to breaking God's law. And this was especially true with the Sabbath. The Pharisees decreed how far you could walk on the Sabbath. The Pharisees came up with a list of 39 acts that you could not do on the Sabbath. And if you breached their list, you were guilty. And man, these, these made-up rules were enforced vigorously. With the, with the result being that the Sabbath, which God had purposed to be a good day of rest for his people, became an oppressive burden that religious elites used to restrict people. And that's the state of things as Jesus comes onto the scene. Now, Jesus is God who became man, and he became a Jewish man. And the Bible repeatedly tells us 
that Jesus was totally without sin. So we are to understand that he perfectly obeyed the Old Testament law. Jesus perfectly kept the Sabbath. And we're told what this looked like in Luke 4.16. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus, like observant Jews in the first century, spent his Sabbaths near home in his community synagogue worshiping God. But while Jesus obeyed the scripture concerning the Sabbath, he was not constrained by the false made-up rules of the Pharisees. He challenged those rules. And so we see six times in the Gospels intense controversy about things that Jesus does, usually healing, on the Sabbath. And the Jewish religious leaders accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath because he would not conform to their made-up rules. But Jesus responded by showing that God's intent for Sabbath was not to burden people with heavy scrutiny about their actions one day a week. Instead, Jesus says in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath day was not yet another institution that God gave humanity to to really heavily and intensely regulate them. The true point of the Sabbath was to benefit mankind through rest. And as a result, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 12, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Doing good things, even to animals, but especially to people, that was always permissible on the Sabbath, no matter what the Pharisees said. Because what was forbidden on the Sabbath was work the continuation of a person's normal livelihood and activities. It was not to forbid any exertion whatsoever. And Jesus said that his interpretation of the Sabbath was authoritative, not the interpretation of the Pharisees. Matthew 12, verse 8, he says, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now that's a claim to deity, because the Sabbath belonged to God. God regulated the Sabbath. But Jesus says, actually, I am Lord of the Sabbath. He says he is greater than the Sabbath, and that means he is greater than every institution and every statute of the Old Testament. Because Jesus is ultimately the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. Jesus said in Matthew eleven thirteen, all the prophets and law prophesied. The whole Old Testament anticipated the coming of the Messiah. And now Jesus is here. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament's expectations. In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew five seventeen. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And the verb Matthew uses here, translated fulfilled, is usually used to speak of prophetic fulfillment in that book. And I think that's the idea. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Every prophecy of the Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus. Every institution that foreshadowed some office of the Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus. Every command of the law anticipates Jesus' perfect, sinless life. And since the Old Testament is ultimately and truly about Jesus, Jesus alone is the authoritative interpreter of the Old Testament. He can say what it really means. He can say what the Sabbath law really means, because it ultimately points to him. But more than that, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, it finds its completion in him. When we find a prophecy fulfilled, we don't expect it to be fulfilled again. Isaiah said a virgin will conceive and bear a child. That happened. Now the fact it happened doesn't mean that falls out of God's word. No, it stays there forever as a testimony that God is faithful to his word. But we don't expect that prophecy to be fulfilled again. It now stands complete. It doesn't have ongoing effect. 
In the same way, Christ is the end of the Old Testament law. Because he is the end of the entire Old Covenant and the Old Testament system. And if you say, I don't, I don't know what I think about that. Friend, in Matthew, it's very clear that Jesus has inaugurated a new covenant. And that means the end of the old one. And the implication of this, Paul says, is in Ephesians 2. That Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Jesus has brought the Old Testament law to its conclusion. It is no longer binding. Now, some people really don't like that conclusion. And, and there are reasons to be concerned when we hear stuff like that. Because we don't want people to draw the false conclusion that, that because the Old Testament law stands fulfilled, this means that we can now live however we want. And we can just do whatever we want and God doesn't constrain us by his word anymore. That is not what I am saying. Okay? Uh, Believing friends, we are part, party to the new covenant, and the new covenant commands of Christ and his apostles do bind us. We must obey them. So the things we find in the New Testament, we must obey if we belong to Jesus. But because many people are antsy about this idea that the Old Testament law stands fulfilled, they have tried to come up with a, an argument to, to, to allow for some of the Old Testament law to remain in force. And typically that argument goes like this. They'll say, well, the old law has three categories. Civil law pertaining to Israel's government, ceremonial laws pertaining to Israel's worship, and moral laws. And the moral laws endure forever. Now, I understand the appeal of that argument, but I don't think it has any basis in Scripture. Because the law in Scripture is always treated as a unit. It is not severable. It cannot be divided into these three categories, and these three categories are not found anywhere in the Scripture. If you, have, if you need a reference on this, consider James 2, verse 10, which says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. The whole law travels together. It cannot be divided into different portions. The law is an indivisible unit. And if that is so, then if Jesus fulfilled any part of the law, he fulfilled all of it. And friends, Jesus has fulfilled at least some parts of the law I think we all would grant. That's why we eat pork. That's why we don't offer animal sacrifices. That's why it's permissible for us to shave our beards. Now, some people might object to this line of reasoning and say, hey, but what about the Ten Commandments? Surely they aren't fulfilled, right? What would we say to that? The Ten Commandments are central to God's covenant with Israel. This is very clear if you actually read Exodus 20. The first commandment, God speaks of bringing Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The command to honor father and mother speaks of Israel receiving the promised land. Friends, this is all bound up with the old covenant, which has passed away. Now, that doesn't mean we live in a moral free-for-all. Because in the New Testament, nine of the ten commandments are repeated. We are bound to the same moral principles that regulated ancient Israel. We are not to murder. We are not to steal. We are not to commit adultery. But the one commandment which is not repeated in the New Testament is the Sabbath. And I don't think we should find that surprising. Because the Sabbath was the sign of Israel's distinctiveness under the Old Covenant. But the Gospel now says there is no ethnic distinction between Jew and Gentile. There is no um, ethnic advantage for being a Jew in terms of salvation. Jew and Gentile are on equal footing at the foot of the cross. And so it stands to reason that the sign of the Old Covenant that testified to Israel's uniqueness would no longer feature prominently in the New Testament. And that's exactly what we find. 
While the Sabbath does appear often in the Gospels talking about Jesus who fulfilled the law, after the Gospels, the Sabbath is mentioned very infrequently. In Acts, it appears a few times, not in connection with Christian worship. Instead, we find Paul going into synagogues on the Sabbath to evangelize Jews by preaching Jesus to them. But we never find the early church meeting on the seventh day in the book of Acts. Instead, we find a few places in the New Testament which seem to indicate that the early church began meeting on Sunday, the day of the resurrection of Jesus, what they called the Lord's Day. But the Lord's Day is never equated with the Sabbath, not once in the Bible, and really this equivalence is not made in any surviving writings of the earliest Christians until the 4th century. So there is no evidence that Jesus or his apostles redefined the Sabbath as Sunday, or that they saw the Sabbath command as relating to the new covenant or binding believers. In fact, when the early church was asked to, 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 to distinguish or to, to identify the degree of continuity or discontinuity between the old, Test, the old covenant and the new covenant, when they had to make that decision in, at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, they said absolutely nothing about the Sabbath. They wrote a letter and asked Jewish and Gentile believers to agree on these things to abstain from sexual immorality, to avoid meat sacrifice to idols and food with blood in it. But they said nothing about the Sabbath. And I find this very interesting, that after there is this heavy emphasis on the Sabbath in the Old Testament, the Sabbath is almost entirely absent from the New Testament. That is a conspicuous absence. I think it is very telling. And in fact, what little is said in the epistles of the New Testament show that clearly something has changed regarding the Sabbath from Old Testament times to New Testament times. Let me point you now to four passages very briefly. The first is found in Galatians 4. Here Paul is rebuking the Galatians because they have abandoned the gospel of grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. And instead they have adopted a false doctrine that says they may be saved only if they become Jewish in their lifestyles. And Paul, writing against this, says in Galatians 4, verse 10, You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul knows that the Galatians have adopted the Jewish calendar as part of this belief that Judaism saves instead of Jesus. And Paul says that is not a good move. That is a bad move. That is showing that they may not actually be believers because their observance of Sabbath was not an evidence of spiritual health but of their adoption of false doctrine. Now, Paul writes in a very different tone in Romans chapter 14, verse 5. Here he says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Verse 10, Why do you pass judgment on your brother. Now we don't know exactly what was going on in the Roman church, but it seems that Paul was concerned there were divisions in the church about non-essential matters of practice. And Paul seems to be particularly concerned that the church was dividing about this question of observing particular days, probably the Sabbath or other Jewish holidays. Now here Paul is not worried that people are keeping the Sabbath because they want to be saved through Judaism instead of Jesus. So he doesn't respond in the same way he responds in Galatians. Here he isn't outraged about this because Paul doesn't think that keeping the Sabbath is bad. He doesn't. Paul thought that keeping the Sabbath with the intention of being saved through the Sabbath was bad, but he doesn't say keeping the Sabbath is bad. 
Instead, he says, whether you want to observe a day or not, that is a matter of individual conscience. He says each believer must be fully convinced in his own mind. Each believer should not judge other believers if they come out with a different answer on this question than you do. But I think the very fact that Paul makes this argument here shows that something substantial has changed from the Old Testament. In Numbers 15, Moses is told about an Israelite who collected firewood on the Sabbath. And friends, Moses did not say, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Moses said, stone him. Paul, on this side of the cross, views this question very differently. Clearly, something has changed dramatically. Now there is freedom in this area of esteeming days on the calendar, where previously there was not. But why has this change taken place? Well, Paul says in Colossians 2.16, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Again, here Paul is dealing with a false doctrine that's trying to convince Gentiles to become more Jewish in their identity and practice. And Paul, trying to dissuade the Colossians from this heresy, explains the function of some parts of the Jewish law, the dietary restrictions and the Sabbath. And he says that these no longer form a basis for an accusation of sin, This is not an area of judgment for the church because, Paul says, actually these things were pointing to Jesus. And that's what Jesus said, right? The law and the prophets point to him. But how does the Sabbath point to Jesus? This is the last passage I want us to look at. And this is a very complex passage in Hebrews chapter 4. And for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize it. The big idea in Hebrews 4 is that the Sabbath prophetically points to the salvation believers have in Jesus. Hebrews 4 4 says that God has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That's our passage, right? Genesis 2. God rested after he created. And as the author of Hebrews thinks about this, his mind goes to Psalm 95, which holds out the prospect of rest for the people of God, and which warned the Israelites not to be disobedient and unbelieving like their ancestors who failed to inherit God's rest. And the author puts these verses together, and as he does so, he recognizes that God's rest on the seventh day of creation ultimately acts as a promise or as an intention from God. God's rest on the seventh day was not for God alone. God intends to bring people into his rest to share it with him forever. And that rest is entered through belief. Hebrews 4.9 says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The Sabbath prophetically anticipated the truth that at the end of history there is a rest for the people of God. A rest we have not yet experienced, but that we will experience in the new creation, enjoying eternal life in God's presence forever. That is the ultimate Sabbath. And we enter into that ultimate rest through repentant faith in Jesus. Hebrews 4.3 says, For we who believed enter that rest. So then this is how the New Testament understands the Sabbath. Not as a weekly obligation for the believer, but as what theologians call a type an Old Testament institution that foreshadows a greater theological truth that is ultimately revealed in Jesus. 
The Sabbath gave Israel periodic rest. Jesus gives his people infinite, eternal rest. And in this intensification, we see something that we see as we can consider the other commandments of the Old Testament. Think about the commandment to, that forbids murder, right? Thou shalt not kill. What does Jesus say? He doesn't just say thou shalt not kill. He says refrain from sinful anger. The Old Testament says thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus says don't even lust. But just as those commands are intensified, so too is the Sabbath rest offered by God. What was in the Old Testament but one day a week is now in the New Testament seen as an eternal promise for the people of God. And friends, that rest is available in Jesus alone. Now this brings us to our last point, which is what should we take from this sermon? Some of you are like, man, this is a lot of theology. What am I supposed to do with this? Okay, wake up, because here's the point. First, you need to know today, true rest is available in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus says this in Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Today, friend, are you troubled? Are you weary? Man, it's hard not to be in this world, right? Today, are you wearied by sin? Maybe even trying to live life on your own terms. And what's it got you? Misery and unfulfillment. Friend, if that's you, I want you to know there is rest available. But you've got to turn away from your old life of self-centeredness and sin. And you've got to turn in faith to Jesus, who is God and man, who died bearing the penalty you owed for your sin and who rose from the dead. Friend, if you follow Jesus, you'll discover he is not a hard master. He is a loving Lord who offers peace and joy in the midst of the trials of this life, who offers glory and bliss forevermore. If you have never come to Jesus in faith today, I, I plead with you, do so. You will find rest for your souls. But if you do know Jesus, here are some applications for you. I've argued today we're not under the Old Testament Sabbath command any longer. And that there's liberty about whether we revere one day as better than another or treat all days alike. But... There are some principles here that I do think we really need to consider. What does your use of time show about your priorities? I've heard people say that, you know, what, what you spend money on shows what you worship. That might be true, but I really think that what you spend your time on shows what you worship. Because time is the ultimate scarce commodity. How we use time speaks volumes about who we are and what we value. When God gave Israel the Sabbath, he was reminding them that their busy lives were not absolute. Yes, life is filled with obligations. At home, at work, in church, on our social calendars. It's easy to let our schedule dominate our lives. But God demanded a day from the Israelites to check their values and priorities. To say, spend a day considering me. To remind them that he is absolute. That everything else in our lives should bow to him. Friend, what does your calendar say about your relationship to God? What does it reveal about what you venerate as ultimate? For many of us, our calendar is dominated by work. But Jesus said, you cannot serve God in money. Work is not God. Don't worship it. Many of us have duties at home to our families. And family is a wonderful gift from God. But it is not ultimate. We worship the creator, not the creation. Many of us love to have fun. And spend endless time vacationing or socializing. Or maybe the, the more reclusive among us love to spend a lot of alone time. 
Maybe our calendar shows that really what we're idolizing is ourselves. Friend, wherever we are, we would do well to make sure that our lives afford us ample time to reflect upon the primacy of God and his Christ. We should do that first by attending church. Hebrews 10 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'm very thankful to see how well the Sunday service has been attended over the past year. Praise God for that. But honestly, what about the rest of the week? Many of you are faithful to attend our other meetings, and we're thankful for that. But some of you we don't see with any regularity. Why is that? Maybe there are legitimate reasons. Maybe there aren't. Only you know. In the same way, I'm thankful to see how many families man the various ministries of this church. And I'm thankful for many of the good responses that we got when we reached out to some of you to ask for additional help. Because some of our families are very overtaxed. They need some rest. But if you're a member here, do you give your time and energy to serve God in this place? What does your involvement in the church reveal about your priorities? But ultimately, as important as the church is, we've got to remember that for Israel, the Sabbath day wasn't really about corporate worship. It was about being refreshed by spending time with family and friends and community. Not by being a couch potato, but by enjoying life, enjoying the company of others, resting and enjoying peace. Friend, do you have time like that in your week? If not, make some. If God ceased from his labors for a day, surely you and I can do the same especially because you are an image bearer of God. You are to reflect God. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. How are you imitating God in rest? If you are an employer, I would say be liberal in giving your employees rest because God was liberal in giving you generous rest. And believing, friend, I want to tell you, you will rest with Christ forever in the end, and that, that thought should encourage you to persevere to the end. But as you persevere and battle through the hardships of life, make sure to rest in the here and now. Again, I don't think a day is mandated. But if God found a day to be a good amount of time for his rest, and if God prescribed a day for Israel, that may be a good starting point for us. So yes, God seems to have given us liberty today in determining to what extent we observe this principle of rest and with what frequency. But friends, rest is prudent. Evaluate your calendar. And make time for rest. And friend, be wise and intentional about how you use your time. For as Paul writes in Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil.